No mai, haere mai, kia ora tato, and welcome to the third episode in the Auckland Writers' Festival Winter Series. I am your host, Paula Morris, and today I had expected to have completed my five festival events, events and to be flying off to Banff in Canada. Instead, I'm speaking to you from my living room in Auckland and I'm not wearing any shoes. Life is unpredictable and we are all rolling with it. Now, many of you will know how these episodes work. We welcome all our writers. I chat with them in turn about their latest book and they each do a short reading. You too can ask questions throughout using the chat functions on Facebook and YouTube. I will be checking for questions and will try to ask them if possible after each reading. Towards the end of the hour, all three writers will return for a final question or two. Now, please share this episode of the Winter Series via social media. And remember that this series is free to view, so ignore any requests for credit cards. Also, don't click on any links in the comments unless those links are supplied by the Auckland Writers Festival. Thank you to our very generous venue and technical partner, Auckland Live, for their support in helping make this series possible. Now, one final reminder, the writers' books we're discussing today are all available for sale or order. Just click on the buy the book link in the episode description. Now, please join me in welcoming uh, from the west coast of the South Island, Becky Manawatu. Kia ora, Becky. Kia ora, Morina. And from Cambridge in the UK, Robert McFarlane. Hi folks, hello. It's quite late at night for Robert, so he's obviously <laughs> drinking heavily. Um, we will be uh, joined a little bit later from the US uh, by Chanel Miller. She can't join us right now, but don't worry. So um, as you all know, uh, Becky and Chanel were, were scheduled to appear this weekend at the festival. And Robert is our wildcard special guest. We're very delighted that all three are able to join us in the winter series lineup. Now, Robert will be talking soon, so please loiter nearby um, while I talk to Becky. And a brief note to our viewers, uh, please be aware that the books we're discussing today do include references to violence, including sexual assault. Now, Becky, our first conversation this morning is with you, Becky Manuatu Naitahu, the author of Owe. Earlier this week, as everyone knows, Becky won the Jan Medlicott Acorn Prize for Fiction at the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards, the first debut novelist to win our National Fiction Prize since Craig Mariner won with Stone Dogs in 2002. By my calculations, she is only the sixth Maori novelist in 50 years of our Book Awards to win the Big Fiction Prize. The power and intensity of Owe has mainly comparing it to another award-winning debut, Alan Duff's Once Were Warriors. The Ockham judges called it a mere ponamu, both a weapon and an object of great beauty. Kia ora, Becky. Welcome and so many congratulations. Kia ora, Paula. Thank you so much. I'm still feeling a little bit, <laughs> as I said just briefly before, a little bit um, bewildered by it all. Really? That's all we've found now for it. It's just, yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> it was lovely seeing your acceptance speech with your family around you. What did your children say? Oh, they were, yeah, absolutely. It was just a moment that will be with us all forever. If I could have them with me around me right now, <laughs> I definitely would. But um, they, I think, just the same as me. There, there was no words for it. It was just so special. And I, 
And as much as it was, it was sad not to be in Auckland for that. It was also quite beautiful to have them with me when I made that acceptance speech. Yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine the noise in your house when it was announced. <laughs> uh, Becky, my husband came sprinting towards me. Yes. <laughs> No, you finished your thought. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, sorry, my husband came sprinting towards me and he ripped me off the ground and twirled me around and we were all yahooing. It was, it was, a, it was special, yeah. <laughs> That's really great. All right, now, for a more serious subject, let's talk about your book because Owe is such a compelling story of two brothers dealing with the immensity of loss and an inheritance that's one of love and one of violence. And it's also the story of their mothers, their fathers, their aunties, those who step in to care for them, and those who disappear. And I wondered, did the novel begin for you with one character in particular? Yes, um, definitely. So uh, the, the, the first character I had was um, Arama, who's a young boy, and he's... Um, my, I realise now, looking back, that um, I started writing the book when my son, a young, fair Maori boy, was about just a little bit, just a little bit older than Arama is at the time that I start the book. But it's also, um, yeah. So all of the story revolved for, for me, starting with him, and he was in my mind, and that's partly because um, I had. Uh, I have. I lost my cousin Glenbo at, at a young age, and so he's always been um, in my writing. So I think that, um, that I was. I, I I've had this character in my head for a very very long time, and then the other characters um, found their way to him. I guess. Oh, one of the novel's characters and one of the novel's voices is a ghost so you have a supernatural element if we want to call it that alongside the, the very gritty realism of the book's action so it's the past and the present interweaving the living and the dead and this strikes me as a very Maori narrative form perceiving the past alive in the present but I understand you had some doubts when you were writing the book about including that voice from the dead I wondered why well, um, so it started out uh, as as a a sort of supernatural, uh, a, a, a spiritual um, voice, it, but as an omniscient um, third person, a third narrated third person um, piece that I was slotting through, and um, I had some advice from from a writer's group I was in Germany at the time and they said that although they can see that this was important to me that I had this spiritual um, uh, current coming through um, because everything else was first person they wondered why I hadn't considered um, using a ghost there's obviously people that have uh, the book starts off with loss so there's there's Aroha who's who's dead so they wondered about me using a ghost form and once I once I had this it was it, 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 it I didn't I didn't 
know why I hadn't seen it in the beginning <laughs> um, instead of having this just omniscient narrator that was um, that was there and didn't have a have a real structure like the rest of the story so yeah no, I no, think it, really, it works brilliantly. It really does. It's fantastic. Um, one of your other characters, one of your other main characters, is a mob kid born into a gang world, and this offers her both community and her childhood love, as well as danger moving forward. And again, there are some resonances here with your last, with your own life. You've written an essay about your sister marrying into the Mongol mob, but how did you approach writing about a child growing up in the house from the inside? Well, I think definitely part of the reasons I've done most of what I've done is just being just that I needed to write this story and I wasn't thinking about um, about how how I should do it. I was just going to my imagination and I was taking things that I knew to be true and they were seeds to... Um, for, for my imagination to do then what it wanted to. So I felt very, very free on the page. And um, and perhaps my second book, I, I will feel a little bit different about that. But I guess, um, so we, we lived in, in Germany for a while and my we, we, we were given, there was three houses on this one street so that, they were all where the rugby players lived and I had my two children there in these three homes um, but we didn't have a, a flat of our own we just had we were given a room and we shared a kitchen then with all the rugby players and it was it was really quite communal living and I think some of the some of the lifestyle of that is definitely crept in then I had um, I was thinking about my sister and it's funny that I didn't realise when I was writing it how much I was trying to draw towards my both my sisters. I have another older sister, Tammy, um, and she's actually on a farm down south and my sister's up north. So lots of things that I, I did in the book just unconsciously came from things that, that were obviously making me sad, but I didn't. I expressed it through through my novel, I guess. Yeah. Um, Becky, would you like to do your reading now from your novel? Um, yes. Just just set up for us what part you're going to read before you before you begin, if that's okay. Sure. So um, we've got a section late in the book, and it's Arama is going camping with with Auntie Cat, Beth, and Tom Aiken, and they're just leaving. Um, Arama's basically asked his auntie that they go because they're, they're surviving under the brutality of this um, awful Uncle Stew and he just wants a relief from that and Auntie Kat um, finally sort of gives in and says, bugger it, let's go. <laughs> Auntie Kat was in the passenger seat and Beth and I were in the back. Tom Aiken's car smelled like cow dung and warm cookies. We were driving down to the Conway Flats to camp and we were going to catch some eel. Tom Aiken would like to bring an eel back from our camping trip to smoke. He told us the only way to eat a meal was smoked, otherwise it tasted like water and mud. Beth said there was no way to good eel because it tasted like S-H-I-T, 
Beth would eat a worm, so I trusted her opinion. Luco was at the window, his head out, his tongue wet, and the saliva ran off in big, thick blobs. I ran my hand along his back. His fur was smooth and soft. I was so happy he was with us. I wanted him to sleep with me in my tent. But I want what I wanted more was for us all to sleep in one tent. Me, Beth, and Lupo in the middle, and Auntie Cat and Tom Aiken on either side. Then I wouldn't be scared at all. At the river, we pitched our tents under the trees. The water was low, but we hiked upstream to a small water hole, not much bigger than a paddling pool. Tom Aiken and Auntie Cat sat on the rocks, and me and Beth stripped down to our underwear and swam, our knees knocking the rocks on the bottom. We were eels curling between the large rocks scraping over the stones. In the run over where Auntie Cat and Tom Aiken couldn't hear us, I decided to ask Beth something that had been bothering me. Do you know what a red neck is? Yes, she said, but her eyes also shot up into her brain like she was scrambling for bits and pieces to put together for an answer. What is it then? A person who tries to hide their bad thoughts, but their skin is so white like white, white like mine, but their thoughts are so ugly so you can see them just in their neck, making the skin there all red and angry. Because you know, all skin is actually just the same and their neck skin has had actually quite a guts full of keeping their secrets for them. So it shows the world. Sort of like Rudolph. You made that up. I made some of that up. I like it. Me too. We had two tents, one for Auntie Cat and me, one for Tom Aiken and Beth and Lupo. Beth and I were disappointed. We wanted to sleep together so we could talk. And I wanted to sleep with Lupo. We were both peed off, so Tom Aiken said, fine, I'll sleep with your Auntie Cat then, and he winked at Auntie Cat, and Beth jumped up and down happy, but I didn't like that idea either. Auntie Cat gave Tom Aiken a little shove and said she wouldn't dare share a tent with him. He would probably fart and snore all night. Nothing you're not used to then, Cat, Tom Aiken said, and Auntie Cat looked sad, probably because it reminded her that she'd left Uncle Stu on the farm. And she was probably worried about how angry he would be with her when she got back. Her black eye looked darker with her face sad. Tom Aiken gave her a little jab to the shoulder. Cheer up, Charlie. Auntie Cat clapped her hands together. Who wants a cookie then? Beth and I jumped up and down like we might not get one if we didn't show her how much we really wanted it. I remember these, Tom Aiken said. Colleen's recipe. Who's Colleen, I asked. Nanny, Auntie Cat said. I'd forgotten she had a real name. I always just thought of her as Nanny. Where is Nanny, Auntie Cat? Gone to try bring Kuddle home, but she doesn't like to drive. I know, but Kuddle needs to come home. Where's he? Rakiuda. Why did he go there? Because Nanny was making him sad, and he was sad enough. What did Nanny do to make him sad? Auntie Cat didn't answer and we all chewed on our cookies quietly. She hasn't gone looking for her earring, has she? Auntie Cat laughed. Of course not. I felt the blood boil up into my face. It was a really dumb thing to say. Auntie Cat then said, you're right though, a magpie could have taken it. It really could be anywhere now, but I doubt Nanny's looking for it. I mean, I hope not. It was my fault, not folks, that she lost it. I called Nanny. It was just a thing. Nanny said it was irreplaceable. She shouldn't have. 
Tom Aiken stood up and dusted the cookie crumbs off himself. We're going Ealing, that's what we're going to do and we're going to be warriors of the river. Beth and I followed Tom Aiken to the car to collect the things we would need for Ealing. Beth grabbed my arm and whispered in my ear, I know when he's lying and he had much more to say than we're going Ealing and River Warrior, blah, blah, blah. Ari, we're going to find out what he's lying about. Beth squeezed my arm. Don't you worry, Django. <clears throat> Kia ora, Becky. Thank you very much for that. Fantastic. You're welcome. I, I, I can't recommend your book enough to, um, to our listeners, our, our viewers. It's such a rich story, um, difficult in parts to read and also incredibly um, vivid and visceral. I wondered um, if we could just talk briefly about three women who are, were very important to you in writing this book, three uh, New Zealand women. One is Mary McCallum, your publisher at Makaro Press, who believed in you in the novel. Uh, Jan Madlicott, the generous donor who gave you $55,000 in prize money. But uh, specifically, the iconic Māori writer Renee, who was your mentor, I understand, for some of the process. How did your relationship with Renee come about? Um, so, Renee, I was put in touch with through Mary because Mary had um, had a connection with her through uh, publishing her memoir, These Two Hands. Um, and <clears throat> Renee, um, my first interaction with Renee was just Mary sending me her um, reader's uh, response to Owe, and um, I still have that. That letter is really just beautiful. In fact, I read it this morning because um, uh, I knew that might be might come up, Renee. And it, the funny thing is, one of the first thing, one of the things she says, one of her criticisms was that I need some help with punctuation. <laughs> so <laughs> I needed plenty of help, and I did get plenty of help. And I think Renee was um, a big. Yeah, she's just a great reader of fiction. She's. Fiction is, um, a, means a lot to Renee and she respects it for a place that um, isn't, isn't perfect and she reads widely and, um, and so we also have that connection. I, um, yeah, she's, she reminds me of my tower a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but since then, every now and then I've been able to email her because it's a scary scary place to be is publishing a book um and and she's just always responds um if i send an email saying oh my god i'm you know she she'll give a few lines back sort of reminding me that it's it's all good <laughs> yeah she's awesome can't speak highly enough of her <laughs> and becky i do want to say that such as the glamorous life of the writer in New Zealand, that when, when we win a massive prize, as you won this week, we immediately treat ourselves as something. And what, in your case, Becky, was the first thing that you bought? The very first thing I bought was a new washing machine. <laughs> Our washing machine had um, cut it out like two days before um, before the awards were announced and we had a nice wee pile of washing there, so and we we went into town and we bought a washing machine from the local uh, from a local store here. But it is good. It's ten kilos. You can fit like we can fit 
a ton of washing in there. <laughs> we needed that. <laughs> well, it's glad to, I'm glad to know that you are living the dream like the rest of us. So kia ora, Becky. Thank you very much for talking to you. I have more questions for you, and we've got some questions from viewers for you as well, but we'll bring those up um, again at the end of the hour, towards the end of the hour. So please sit tight there. Remember, a reminder to our viewers that, of course, you can ask questions for Becky at any time through the chat functions, and we'll get to them at the end of our session. So our next writer today is Robert McFarlane, the author of Underland, a book that explores the worlds beneath us. Robert is the author of eight books for which he's won numerous awards, as well as the honor of being parodied by John Crace. Last year, Underland won the UK's top nature writing award, the Wainwright Golden Beer Book Prize. And Robert is certainly one of the most admired writers in English for his work at the intersections of nature, landscape and travel writing. His name mentioned alongside the great New Yorker writer, John McPhee, and of course the late great Patrick Lee Fermer. Underland is both erudite and accessible, a series of personal journeys informed by a keen intellect encompassing history, literature, Western myth, as well as numerous branches of science. No surprise that it took Robert allegedly a decade to write. Robert, kia ora and welcome. Thank you, thank you so much. Hi everybody and thank you for that warm welcome. And Becky, how wonderful to, to hear you, hear you, my first encounter with your work to be in your voice. That is a special thing, so. That's really great. Thank now, Robert, so we're, we're crazy today, we're Zoom crazy. Um, <laughs> Robert, you write uh, that into the underland, we have long placed that which we fear and wish to lose and that which we love and wish to save. And it's a place, as you say, that keeps its secrets. What drew you to explore underground spaces around which you write there's a long cultural history of abhorrence? Mm. Yes, well, I, it, it, it's, a, it's an opposition really, or a, it's the conclusion to a, a gradient I've been following for, for for 20 years or so now. So I, I began on the mountaintops and that's still where my where my heart heart is. It's the thing I'm missing most during lockdown, I think, apart from my parents. But the first book I wrote 20 years ago, almost now, was an attempt to explain why people are drawn to the summits of mountains at, at the cost of their lives. And here, 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 here I am, uh, nearly two decades on, trying to work out the opposite, which is actually a far deeper and far older puzzle, which is why why go low? And there are many answers to that question. Uh, some, some of them are take us into terrible histories of, of uh, indentured labor, of slavery, of, of oppression. Um, others take us into mysterious and metaphysical territories. And uh, quite early on, I realized that although our impulse to climb mountains is relatively young, 300 years or so in, in the Western tradition, uh, if I can use that phrase. Um, the impulse to go down and into darkness to find meaning and make meaning and leave marks and messages for generations or times to come is, is much, much older, older than our species, really. It's interesting, you, the book you're referring to, um, I believe, is your, your book, Mountains of the Mind, um, which is about the lure of the summit. So this is kind of the inverse of that. But it's still um, an exploration of extreme landscapes, wouldn't you say? Yes. I, I mean, the Earth, uh, we, we know so little of, of what lies 
beneath our feet. I, I remember early on looking up and realizing on a, on a night, not unlike this one here in, in England, a clear night, no clouds. And I realized I could see millions of miles. In fact, I now know uh, probably the light that's crossed trillions of miles of space. But when I looked down, I couldn't see past my own toes. And we, we've, we've treated the underworld both as a source of remarkable knowledge. Uh, this is visible in the Greek and the classical traditions of, of descent to the underworld to bring back uh, that which is known by the dead but not known by the living. And that's hard knowledge to get. But we've also treated it as a place of, of, of darkness, of deprivation, quite rightly as well. And I, I began writing this book, or I began to consider writing this book in 2010 when the underworld erupted into our upper world systems in, in catastrophic ways. The Icelandic volcano erupted and, and brought flights to a standstill in a way that hasn't happened until now. Um, there was the Chilean miners caught under the Atacama Desert uh, and then brought to safety by, by the government and by there and by NASA. Uh, there were earthquakes and there was the Deepwater Horizon disaster. And in all of these ways, the underworld was kind of pushing up at the surface. And I became fascinated by this idea of, of, of unburials, of things that we thought we'd safely stored rising up to overwhelm us. And it's been hard not to think of some of those uh, precursors to our, our current situation where um, something that we thought was under our control has absolutely collapsed global systems that we thought were, were, were robust in our hubristic way. I mean, that's the title of, of one of John McPhee's very famous books, The Control of Nature, that humans keep thinking they can control nature and nature is having none of it. As we've seen in New Zealand in the last few years with not the Christchurch earthquakes and then more recently the eruption at White Island, as you say, the underland rising up. Yes, yes. Um, Robert, can we Carry talk on. about the structure of your book? It's divided into three sections or what you call chambers, seeing hiding and haunting and you move from Britain to mainland Europe and then up to the Nordic North and beyond and I wondered why you chose this structure. Uh, well I wanted to I wanted the reader to descend I mean I, I originally conceived of this as a as a classical the whole book as a classical catabasis as it's called that is the the, the, the great uh, underworld journeys that are made where you where you descend and you you get down into into Hades effectively and there you you either perish or you discover knowledge and you think you think you've done it, but then the really hard bit is, is getting back up to the light. So I wanted the reader to feel claustrophobic. I wanted the reader to feel in darkness and, and moving through tunnels between chambers where revelation might, might lurk, as it were, where darkness might be a medium of vision. Um, so that, that was the formal aspiration. And then I, I made these journeys and began to realize that they were falling into these three, as it were, categories of, of the counterintuitive idea of, of seeing in, in the darkness and also this idea of being being ghosted by a past that, that is not really our past but always our, our co-evil present. You go exploring the Paris catacombs um, mm. with um, a group of people who call themselves urban explorers and I was reminded of, of a quote about you um, as someone who is interested in weirdness, linguistic <laughs> and otherwise. Is this true of yourself, would you say? Well, I'm a pretty, uh, pretty straight, a straight kind of person, really. So, I yes, I find I find eccentrics and obsessives uh, deeply interesting. I think I'm a. I sometimes think of myself as an obsessive obsessive. That's the thing that really 
fascinates me is people who are intensely interested in what they do. And uh, one group of those people are the, the, the cataphiles, as they the, the cataphile, the, the, the literally the lovers of below. And these are the these are people who love exploring this huge network of of, of former mining tunnels, now ossuaries that under writhe the south of Paris. The city of light has this invisible city to use a Italo Calvino's phrase, and you, you're not meant to be in it, but there are ways of, of gaining access. And I was, I was down there for two and a half days. You, it's the strangest set of juxtapositions I can imagine. You pass through flooded tunnels where, you, where I've had suffered heart-pumping claustrophobia, and then you pop out into a party room where a bunch of French Canadians are pressing glasses of vodka into your hand and a guy dressed as Indiana Jones pops out of, a, of another tunnel, literally with a burning taper and a whip. Um, so it's this sort of space of cultural recycling and alternative histories that absolutely spins your brain. Robert, would you give us a reading from the book now? Yes, uh, far from the catacombs. Um, I mean, much of the book is, is about this idea of, of, as it were, collapse and of precarity, environmental predominantly. Uh, it take, the, the book, as it were, takes place in the Anthropocene where, where we are now. And this particular scene occurred in 2016, which was at that point the, the summer of greatest melt in Greenland. And uh, I was up on the, on the east coast of Greenland for, for the summer and autumn of that period of time. And one of the things we saw was uh, when we were living uh, and climbing near a remote glacier was, was what I'll describe now, and it becomes a metonym for these bigger forms of collapse. So we're, we're, we're far from anywhere close to the snout of a glacier on a, on a sea fjord. It happens that afternoon when we're all together, standing near the tents and talking inconsequentially, enjoying the lethargy of the rest day. A shot-like snap begins it whip-cracking across the fjord and the mountain walls. A hunter, I say, but it isn't a hunter, it's the glacier, and the sound of a crack marks the fall of a bus-sized block of ice from high on the carving face of the glacier. We don't see it fall, but we see it swill back up and bob. Without that outrider of the main event, we might have missed what followed, an event that, as Helen puts it later, rarely occurs under witness. There, shouts Bill, but we're all already looking there where the first block fell, for it seems that a white freight train is driving fast out of the carving face of the glacier, thundering laterally through space before toppling down towards the water. And then the white train is suddenly somehow pulling white wagons behind it from within the glacier, like an impossible magician's trick. And then the white wagons of ice are followed by a cathedral, a blue cathedral of ice, complete with towers and buttresses, all of them joined together into a single, unnatural, sideways collapsing edifice. And then a whole city of white and blue follows the cathedral as we shout and step backwards involuntarily at the force of the event, even though it's occurring a mile away from us. And we call out to each other in the silence before the roar reaches us, even though we're only a few yards from each other. And then all of the hundreds of thousands of tons of that ice city collapse into the water of the fjord, creating an impact wave 40 or 50 feet high. And then <clears throat> something truly terrible occurs, which is that out of the water where the city has fallen, there upsurges, rising, or so it seems from where we are standing, right to the summit of the carving face itself, a black shining pyramid 
sharp at its prow, thrusting and glistening, made of a substance that has to be ice, but looks like no ice we've seen before, something that resembles what I imagine meteorite metal to be, something that's come from so deep down in time that it's lost all colour, and we're dancing and swearing and shouting, appalled and thrilled to have seen this repulsive, exquisite thing rise up that should never have surfaced, this star-dropped berg surge that has taken three minutes and a hundred thousand years to conclude. Twenty minutes later and the fjord is calm again. The obscenity might never have occurred. The next day at the tideline I find a small iceberg, rounded and dark blue, stranded in a rock pool. It's a relic of the dark star. I'm just able to lift it. So I carry it in both arms, cradling it, calling to the others. It numbs my hands and chest. It feels far heavier than it should. I stumble uphill towards the camp and place it on top of a boulder by the tents. The sun shines through the ice. Air bubbles inside it show as silver, wormholes, right angle bends, incredible zigzags. That night an arctic fox comes to our camp, a playful blue shadow. The little berg takes two days to melt. It leaves a stain on the dark rock that won't vanish. Stop there. Kia Robert. Thank you very much for that. Um, a viewer has uh, sent a question that's quite pertinent, I think, after listening to that reading. Um, the question is, in Underland, you're writing in, well, you're in so many tight spots where it seems like all you can do is really focus on surviving or focus on the moment. But your writing seems so immediate. What was your process of taking or dictating notes to keep each detail in your mind? Uh, it's, a it's a lovely question, and I, uh, I I could reach over there and grab the, the big wall of notebooks that I carried with me, little paper ones, tiny back pocket things that could get wet and scuffed and knackered and pick up pick up cave dirt and, and iceberg meltwater and, and so forth. But um, uh, the answer is I, 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 I sort of wrote in the aftermath and then... Um, uh, and, and then composed in the present, as it were. So the, because the book occurs in a time scale of 4.6 billion years, I decided that the, the moments themselves, as you heard then, would all be written in the present tense. So there is this, there's this very odd adjunct or discrepancy between the fact of the, the time of experience, the time of, of noting, and then the remaking into, into the finished prose. But I, I knew I wanted for the first time to write um, uh, two-thirds of a book in the present tense. Uh, one one reader harangued me at a reading and said, I am so fed up of books written in the present tense. As soon as I opened yours, I was ready to throw it across the room. Um, and uh, and then she said, but I gave you a second chance and, um, uh, and, and, kept, and kept going. So anyway, I don't know what to make of that, but, but that's why it's written in the present. It's a very heavy book to be throwing across the room, I would say. <laughs> Did it really take you 10 years to write? Well, first ideas, 2010, start of 2010, so um, published 2019. Uh, I really began work on it in, in, in late 2011, early 2012. And then, um, yeah. So, I mean, I was doing a few other things along the way, but yeah, a slow, slow, obsessive reworking. I, I, I don't know how our other guests uh, this evening write, but uh, it, it takes me such a long time to make a paragraph. It really does. I'm sure there are better ways to spend my time. Um, Robert, I, 
I would like to talk to you more, but I feel that we should move on now. Um, but please stay where you are because we'll be inviting you back at the end of the session to join us again. I wanted to remind our viewers that you can buy Underland or any of the books we're discussing today by clicking on the book link in the episode description. It's such a, a rich experience going from, you know, Egyptian tombs to underground cities uh, to the north. Uh, I really recommend it. Um, please. Uh, so kia ora, Robert. And now we move to yet another country, to the west coast of the States. Our, our third writer today is Chanel Miller the author of Know My Name. Like Owe, it is a book of power and beauty that confronts us with the profound darkness of everyday violence. Now, this best-selling memoir was chosen for multiple notable book lists after its publication last year. It is the lucid testimony of a young woman sexually assaulted in 2015 on the campus of Stanford University. The trial of her assailant, Brock Turner, made international news, in part because of the light sentence given to him by Judge Aaron Persky and the issues raised by the trial around privilege, entitlement and the toleration of sexual assault on college campuses. Miller's 7,000-word victim impact statement, now famous, was not only widely published but read aloud by 18 members of the US Congress on the floor of the House of Representatives. The ramifications of the trial included a change in California law, the recall of the judge by California voters, as well as a national discussion about the way both universities and the legal system handle the issue of rape in residences, campuses, athletic programs, and so on. For Chanel, personally, of course, there were enormous consequences for her and her family during and after the trial. The New York Times Review has called Know My Name an act of reclamation, one woman's story, but also every woman's story. Kia ora and welcome, Chanel Miller. Hello. Hello, Paula. I'm so happy to be here with you, and I'm really honored to be alongside Becky and Robert as well. So thank you for having me. Thank you. We're delighted to have you. Um, now, Chanel, it's about eight months since you gave up your anonymity by publishing Know My Name. In your statement, your victim statement, impact statement, you said, I had to force myself to relearn my real name, my identity. So how difficult it was it for you to make that real name public? Extremely difficult. I actually just finished writing the afterword for the book yesterday about coming to terms with that decision. You know, a lot of survivors come to me and say, I wish I had the courage to come forward or to do what you've done. And I always say, it's never about your courage. There's so many other factors that you have to incorporate. It's about having enough money for security cameras, having money for therapy, to have a fallback plan. So all of these are very, very real threats. And it is scary. At the same time, I knew that I had been living in a confined world for almost five years to never be able to speak about what's important to you, to connect with others on a deep level, to lie to 90% of the people in your life and say that you're working at a nine to five when you're really at home in your pajamas writing every day for three years. You can't keep up that life. So I really had to just make peace with the fact that it was time for me to step out and 
by that time, you know, I was strong enough in my own convictions that whatever happened externally, whatever opinions were put on to me, I was firm enough in my own stance that I knew I could weather that part of it. You say that you're providing in the book a realistic view of the complexity of recovering, which is what you're describing now, because after the trial, you say the sense of scrutiny becomes internalized. And you talk about the lag, the way you anticipate having to present yourself to an invisible jury who will judge everything you do, including what you're wearing and how you're standing. Is this something that you think will, will ever go away? Yeah, I mean, I still struggle with it. And what was most fascinating to me going through this process is that before every appearance in court, I would go back through the facts of the night of the assault. And it was my job to know them, you know, know everything that happened in five minute increments, you know, know what time I peed, know how many sips I had of what. And I would go in with this information and think that it was my job to relay this information. And I thought that the questions that would be asked of me would be in order to extricate those facts and information. When in fact, looking back at the transcripts and being able to actually sit down with them and read them as I was doing research to write the book, I was learning that so many of the questions were just meant to deteriorate my self-confidence and to instill self-doubt. And that's something that you don't think to protect yourself from going in. You're so busy thinking about these little minuscule details. Meanwhile, the defense attorney had a completely different motive of, I'm just gonna break you down slowly and make you keep backpedaling and kind of cornering yourself until you begin to doubt what you say. So really, I wish I could have told myself, instead of focusing on all the details, focus on you know, being, trusting your truth and being aware that someone is trying to shrink you down. And in writing, I wanted to make others aware of that process because it's really subtle and it's something you can't, you don't notice when it's happening to you. I mean, your book made me cry and made me furious. Yeah. And I, I have to admit to doing a lot of anger Googling over the last week. But it also made me hopeful because of what you're talking about. You were prepared to give such clear testimony in your book. And there are many women, as you say, who've had similar experiences who don't have the ability or the opportunity to articulate those experiences. Now, you've been named an influential person by Time magazine, but I, I really like the way you talk in the book about rejecting the notion of an inspiring story. Um, still being here, you say, is enough, simply speaking, rather than inspiring. Is that your intention in the book? Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful now. It, it appears to be pretty triumphant. I can show up and speak and come out with a silver lining. But for so many of the days, especially that first year, you know, success to me was waking up. Success to me was not offing myself. It was continuing just to show up. You know, maybe I wouldn't even eat. Maybe I wouldn't sleep, but I was existing. And sometimes that baseline is enough. Stay there as long as you can, and slowly things will change. And even, you know, the first time I ever gave my story in court, I had uh, my first testimony, 
I was, I was like wailing and there was just snot everywhere, like across my lips, makeup was everywhere. But at the time that was really good. I did a great job because that was the best I could do at that time. So just remember to assess where you are at each point in time. Here I am five years down the line and I can talk about it without weeping. And in fact, what I've noticed now is that the only times I cry when I talk about my story is when I talk about the response I've gotten and how moved I've been by what people have said. It's like my emotional core has shifted, but anytime that stuff comes up, I get weepy because people are really kind <laughs> on the other side. Um, Stanford, one of the most elite universities in the US, does not emerge from the pages of your book with any credit. I'm um, not least their built garden, garden at the site of your assault where they refused to use uh, the quote from your statement that you wanted them to use because it might be triggering. But you say this book is not intended as a Stanford bashing and in fact you frame it as a love letter and what do you mean by that? I grew up you know, five to 10 minute drive from Stanford campus. So I had been there thousands of times in my life. I had so many tutors from Stanford growing up. I had a clarinet tutor for reasons unbeknownst to me, but I was really good at clarinet. So it was this, this place of familiarity. And when the assault happened, what was devastating was I was stripped of this place of home and the entire campus became this huge area of avoidance. And in the book, I say that their absence was a presence. And I had never intended to bash them. I just wanted to voice that you hurt me. You know, how could you not even acknowledge that this happened or to be there with me as I was going through this process that was started by one of your own students. So the failure of acknowledgement of seeing me through the process of guiding me to any kind of resources of support, the lack of transparency about assaults that continue to happen on their campus, that really hurt me because it was clear that it was not an isolated incident. It was not enough to get rid of the one bad apple and say that that was enough. So I wanted them to work with me to make things better and there was more resistance than I than I thought there would be. Oh, of course, because they don't want to admit to actually growing apple trees, do they? <laughs> Chanel, would you give us some a reading from your book? Is that possible to have a short reading? Of course. All right, so this is toward the end, and it talks a lot about healing, which we talked a little bit about. I'm not sure exactly what healing is or looks like, what form it comes in, what it should feel like. I do know that when I was four, I could not lift a gallon of milk, could not believe how heavy it was, that white sloshing boulder. I'd pull up a wooden chair to stand over the counter, pouring the milk with two shaking arms, wetting the cereal, spilling. Looking back, I don't remember the day I lifted it with ease. All I know is that now I do it without thinking, can do it one-handed on the phone in a rush. I believe the same rules apply that one day I'll be able to tell this story without, sh without it shaking my foundation. Each time will not require an entire production, a spilling, a sweating forehead, a mess to clean up, sopping paper towels. It will just be a part of my life, every day lighter to lift. Ram Dass said, allow that you are at this moment, not in the wrong place in your life, 
Consider the possibility that there have been no errors in the game. Just consider it. Consider that there is not an error and everything that's come down on your plate is the way it is and here we are. I don't believe it was my fate to be raped, but I do believe that here we are is all we have. For a long time, it was too painful to be here. My mind preferred to be dissociated. I used to believe the goal was forgetting. It took me a long time to learn. Healing is not about advancing. It is about returning repeatedly to forge something. Writing this book allowed me to go back to that place. I learned to stay in the hurt, to resist leaving. If I got stuck inside scenes in the courtroom, I would look, I would glance down at Mogu, my dog, and wonder, if I'm really in the past, how did this blinking thing get in my house? I assembled and reassembled letters in ways that would describe what I'd seen and felt. As I revisited that landscape, I grew more in control, could come and go when I needed to, until one day I found there was nothing left to gather. The transcripts that once overwhelmed me were now only pieces of paper. I began to belong more to my present than my past. I was no longer trying to get somewhere, only asking myself, are you improving? Sometimes the answer was not today. Sometimes I was regressing but the voice in my head was now gentler. Whatever the answer, I was patient and understanding. From grief, confidence has grown, remembering what I've endured. From anger stemmed purpose. To tuck them away would mean to neglect the most valuable tools this experience has given me. If you're wondering if I've forgiven him, I can only say hate is a heavy thing to carry, it takes up too much space inside the self. It's true that I'll never stop hoping that he learns. If we don't learn, what is life for? If I have forgiven him, it's not because I'm holy. It's because I need, a, I need to clear space inside myself where hard feelings can be put to rest. Many of us struggle to crawl out from under what we've been given, to build ourselves beyond the small definitions we've been assigned. I feared at times that I'd lost my imagination because I felt boxed in by my role as victim. But when I was trapped, I learned I could still move internally. When I felt depressed, I wrote and imagined my future down to the coffee bean, the children's books I will illustrate, the chickens I will have in my yard, the soft cotton linens, the sauce-dipped wooden spoons on the counter. The need for it to come true according to plan was not important. The act of imagining was. I wrote this book because the world can be harsh and terrible and often unforgiving. I wrote because there were times I did not feel like living. I wrote because the court system is slow as a snail and victims are forced to spend so much time fighting rather than spending their days creating, drawing, cooking. I wrote to expose the brutality of, ent of entitlement, gender violence and class privilege in our society but I would be failing you if you walked away from this book untouched by humanity without seeing what I saw. Those thousands of handwritten letters, the green-lipped fish at the bottom of the ocean, the winking court reporter, all the small miracles that sustained me. We may spend half our time wandering around, wondering what we're even doing here, why it's worth the effort, but living 
is an incredible thing just to have been here, to have felt, if only briefly, the volume and depth of others' empathy. I wrote, most of all, to tell you I have seen how good the world could be. Thank you. Well, Chanel, thank you very much for that reading. Uh, one of our viewers has sent in a question asking how it feels to you to be an influential figure for other survivors. It's good when you look this good. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really wonderful just to be able to connect face to face. You know, when I have the, those experiences now, it just hits me how hungry I was to have those kinds of connections for a really long time. And even the feeling you get when you step into a room, you know, in court, you immediately like shrivel and you clench up and it feels terrible. You feel yourself being hated and you emerge sort of hollowed out. Um, but now when I go to read and I go to these events, there's so much warmth in the room, I don't shy away at all. And even when it's a big audience, I feel so, feel more at ease than I ever have been because people, I know people are seeing me for me and that they've, they know the depths of everything I've been through and yet they still show up and are excited to see me and want to know more. So it's really, it's really a lovely feeling. You've had tremendous support from your parents and your sister as well. How are they doing? They're wonderful. They're in California. So lots of phone calls. And I'm in New York City now. This is my first month in New York City. <laughs> oh, you picked a good uh, month. I know. <laughs> We're doing all right. We're doing as good as we can be. But they're, they're very... I mean, we're all very grateful that you know so many people have supported me and I think especially for the loved ones of the victim there's so much focus on the victim and her healing and what she went through that a lot of the focus is taken away from the family members who are impacted in their own ways and now that I'm finally I feel like I'm taken care of they were able to finally get the support um, they needed so that's really important too. Um, and we have another reader question, which I think uh, your reading actually answered, but let's discuss it anyway. And the question was, what was your daily writing process like working on Know Your Name, Know My Name, sorry, when the subject matter deals with trauma? But I think you were talking about facing it rather than avoiding it, remembering, not repressing. Was, was that what helped you to overcome the trauma enough to write about it? Yes, so much of my process is just crying on the floor. And early on, I had to realize that writing for me was equal parts processing. So maybe I'll be processing something, you know, I'll like peel open a transcript, peek it, put it away, and boom, I'm out for five days. You know, I, I withdraw. I cry, everything has to pass through um, because it's so, it was so much to take in and um, I couldn't come up with anything cohesive to say. You mentioned the anger, the anger was nuts. I had to process the anger and to bring it down to a level where I could present it to you in a way that um, you'll hear it. 
so I would just say be really gentle to yourself through the process. If you're not being quote unquote productive, it's not because you're lazy or failing to show up. It's because a feeling is literally working its way through your plumbing and needs some time to feel its way out before you can sit down and do this and make, you know, beautiful sentences. Chanel, I'd like to bring the other two writers back now, Becky and Robert, um, because we've had some difficult issues to discuss today, rising in different ways from the pages of all these three miraculous books. And I wanted the other two writers to consider something that Chanel writes in Know My Name about resisting the instinct to turn away. And she says, denying darkness does not bring anyone closer to the light. Now, Robert, in Underland, um, it's been said of the book that you show us how to see in the dark, obviously a more literal darkness, but one that's still often avoided. Do you think your book will persuade us to reconsider our engagement with what lies beneath? Well, the first, first thing I'd say is, is just how, uh, how moving and remarkable it was to hear that reading uh, and and from Chanel and it's just that gallon of milk the sloshing boulder uh, I won't forget that it's a it's a brilliant image the boulder that is suddenly liquid um, that contains movable volume and uh, you also put me in mind of a of the line that lies on the tombstone or the memorial stone of, of a writer very important to me Nan Shepherd a Scottish writer uh, and she, the line is, it's a grand thing to get leave to live. Mm-hmm. And it was her sense of, 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 of joy at the permission of to, to be. Um, and uh, she, she didn't uh, pass through anything like you have done. But I think she shared something of your, your joy at, at, at being that, that is available to you now. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, and then, and then um, briefly, I, I I don't know. Um, I mean, the, the, one of the metaphors at the heart of Underland is is, is seeing in the dark, and, and that's something that dark matter physicists do when they go down to a mile deep laboratory to try and to try and fathom one of the great mysteries of the universe, which is what most of it is made of. <laughs> we have so little idea of it, uh, but that, of course, itself is is metaphoric work and, and stands in my book as a as a as a metaphor for really the humility of how little we know. Um, and and as a rebuke to to the to the hubris of of, of human knowledge systems that assume domination and, and power. So, uh, I mean, we 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 are receiving now the greatest rebuke uh, that that our uh, sort of late capitalism has received, and we will we will see what lessons have been learned from that. I'm skeptical of pandemic utopianism, but I also see that with hard work there is opportunity for 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 progress here. And so that, that would be a version of learning to see in the dark, I think. And Becky, um, an interviewer after the awards this week said to me that your book seemed dark, as though it's something for us to fear as a nation of readers. And I wondered if the darkness that you show us is too close to home, maybe for comfort for some New Zealand readers. What do you think? I, I also, like Robert, I need to start by just... Um, giving a mihi to Chanel because you just moved me so much. I'm act- I was, yeah, I'm, you are a beauty that is, was so beautiful. Um, I think darkness often belongs on the, on the page and with characters um, that's 
how we can we get to to see some of the the stuff we don't want to see. And I know um, it is very difficult to to look at, and um, it can hurt people. And um, fiction can be can be a painful thing to read, um, but it's still important that we are able to use it as a way of expressing that darkness. Otherwise, we're kind of. I, don't, I think it's. I think it's. It opens conversations up. Um, I'm just starting to join these conversations, so I'm still feel a bit new at it, and I struggle with it. But I'm really open to it being um, something that I get better at because that's part of the process now. <laughs> just finding that. But um, my. <clears throat> I'm, I'm so moved by everything I've listened to today, including Robert's. It was just such an honour. Um, a lot of my characters, they have um, sort of, uh, there's a lot of duality uh, there, which is expressed in two people being together quite often. And one of those people will kind of seem quite good and the other one um, perhaps is a little, in, in the case of children, a little bit more naughty. Um, and in the cases of adults, there's some that seem quite pure and are against um, something that's a bit darker. And I, I sometimes think of those characters, the the relationships as single characters rather than um, rather than always two characters. These relationships become a single character because they have that uh, light and dark within them and reflecting in contrast, which is something that I quite, I, I really like light and dark contrast, which is um, clear in, in my, my book. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. Uh, Chanel, I would like to give you the last word on this, um, lightness and dark. Oh, I mean, I just like, who doesn't have darkness? You know, at first I thought for a long time that I was like stained or dirty or something was wrong with me. And like little by little, even getting to know your parents better, you just learn everybody's been through something. And so even if critics are like, oh, this is dark. I don't know if you want to touch it. It's like, well, you stuff at home. You probably don't want to touch too. But I just think, <laughs> I think our collective power is giving people entryways into the darkness and giving them the tools they need to sit inside that darkness and inhabit that space because we all have it. And I think it's just a matter of learning to live alongside it or put some light along with it. Um, so yeah, I'm a darkness advocate. <laughs> and Chanel, I have to tell you, you shine, you shine there in the darkness like to, to thank you very much. Thank, thank you to Becky Manawatu. Thank you to Robert McFarlane for joining us today. It's been really fascinating to hear about you and your books. Thanks to everyone else who's made this episode possible, especially Anne O'Brien, Nicholas Strawbridge and Tessie Yeoman from the Auckland Writers' Festival team and Francis Van Kalk from Auckland Live. Kia ora also to the generous sponsors and partners listed on the festival's website. Thank you for your ongoing support. Now, this episode can be viewed again at your leisure on the festival website. And remember, if you'd like a copy of the 2020 program, a hard copy, as your reading guide for the rest of the year, please contact the festival and they'll send one out to you. Uh, tune in again next week when our guests will include the great American short story writer, Deborah Eisenberg, 
discussing her latest collection, Your Duck is My Duck. Deborah's partner, inconceivable, the actor and writer Wallace Shawn, and the wonderful New Zealand writer Caroline Barron talking about her new memoir, Rapiro Beach, a memoir of life after near death. So see you same time, same place next week. Hi, Lena.